pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. instantly but you know the word says lay lay hands on no man no woman hastily and sometimes you need to pray it through sometimes you need to seek the Lord and get something from the spirit before you lay hands on people children you're dismissed uh, are youth dismissed I guess they are huh? who's who's yeah I guess hallelujah children and youth to the Lord Terry, there's the future of the church. Yes. Glory. Well, we've been studying the seven letters to the seven churches. Started with the church of Ephesus, and we worked our way up now to the church in Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. Brotherly love. Look at Revelation 3, verse 7. And we're going to see what Jesus had to say to this church, what Jesus thinks about this church. And to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, or some translations say, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, obeyed my command to persevere, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. I hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Hold fast. Or hold that fast. Hold on to tightly that which uh, that no man taketh thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. One of the things I just want to mention right here is that uh, he knows their works. And he said that to each 
church in the seven letters. Every one of the churches, he said, I know thy works. He's not guessing. He's not wondering. He's not thinking about it. He knows our works. He knows everything that we're doing. There's nothing that you can do that he doesn't know about. Amen? It must be important because he said it to all seven churches. But did you notice that Jesus didn't have one negative thing to say about this church? It wasn't a perfect church either. Not by any means. No, there's no perfect churches anywhere in the world. Never has been. I won't say never will be because when this church meets in the sky, it's going to be a perfect church. Hallelujah. But although it wasn't a perfect church, it was a blameless church. Jesus didn't blame them for one thing that was going on. He didn't criticize them for one thing that was going on. He encouraged them. And that's really good because of its location. On one side, within about 30 miles, was the church of Sardis. I mean, the dead church. And on the other side of Sardis, not too much further than Sardis, was Laodicea, which was a spiritually bankrupt church and a disengaged church. And Philadelphia is right smack in the middle. Dead church on one side, disengaged, spiritually bankrupt, bankrupt church on the other side, and right there in the middle, this solid little church that stands like a rock. And one of the things Jesus loved about this church at Philadelphia was that they honored his name and they honored the gospel message. And God said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you honor me, I will honor you you. In other words, if you stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But what happens if you don't honor him? What happens if you don't stand up for him? He's not going to honor you or stand up for you. And this church was living in the same environment as all those other churches that were being persecuted, that were in poverty, that were some spiritually dead, some of them left their first love. Some of them were playing church and pretending. And this little church is right in the same environment, the same heathen uh, cities around them, the same heathen worship around them, and yet they stood like a rock. They didn't deny his name, and they always honored God. Hallelujah. And Jesus blessed them for that. Yeah. How could they stand like that? Because they honored him, and he honored them. They stood by the gospel message and they never compromised. And they refused to deny his name. And that's the reason Je that Jesus set before them an open door. An open door that no man could close. If Jesus opens a door, no man is going to close it in your face. Amen? Amen. And if he shuts a door, no man is going to open it. Amen? But before we go any further, I want to explain a few things, and then I want to spend some time talking about the key of David and open and closed doors and why Philadelphia had this open door and what was on the other side of that open door. You know, if Jesus opens a door for you, he expects you to go through it. So in verse 9, Jesus referred to that group of Jews as being the synagogue of Satan. Man, 
That's some harsh stuff right there, isn't it? He said they claimed to be Jews, but they really weren't because they were a bunch of lying hypocrites. They created such opposition to Jesus and his church and the gospel that he called them spawns of Satan. He said in verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. They were in a synagogue. The Jews had synagogues, but he called it a synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So let me tell you something. Every atheist, every agnostic, every college professor who taught philosophy 101 and poisoned the minds of our youth into believing that there is no God will stand before him one day and every denier of Jesus Christ and his gospel, they will one day stand before him and bow their knees and confess in his face that he is the Lord of glory. Yes. Every one of them. And the Apostle Paul quoted the prophet Isaiah. He said, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus is telling us here that if we keep his word and refuse to deny his name, he will make them come and bow down before our feet. And they will know that he loved us. Everyone ever mocked you because you witnessed for Jesus Christ? Or ever, anybody ever mocked you that uh, when you tried to share the gospel with them or tell them about Jesus? Every one of them, they're going to bow at your feet one day and they're going to know that Jesus loved you but Jesus calling the synagogue of Satan was a really serious accusation because the Jews place of worship was the synagogues I mean they would meet there to fellowship to share and preach the word of God it was church and fellowship for them just like this is church and fellowship for us so to say their synagogue belonged to Satan was pretty harsh. But you know what? Jesus never minced words. And when it comes to telling the truth, we shouldn't mince words either. We shouldn't dance all around the truth. We should tell somebody what the real truth is. And let the chips fall where they may. Oh, please don't mention this to my husband. Please don't mention this to so-and-so. Oh, they'll go crazy. They'll just... Oh, they ain't going to like that. I mean, so what? Tell them the truth. Let them do whatever they want. Let them go crazy. Let them dance. Let them run. Let them stand on their head. That's not up to you what they do. It's up to you to tell the truth and not mince the words. Amen? Let the chips fall. Well, I'm worried about what they might think about me. Who cares what they think about you? You better worry about what God thinks about you. In Jesus' eyes, the eyes that John described as a blazing fire that pierces, penetrates, refines, and purifies, eyes of fire that penetrate to the very soul of man. He sees all the way through you. Eyes that see everything and miss nothing. 
In Jesus' eyes, their assemblies were an abomination to the God that they said they worshipped. And so they deserved to be called the synagogue of Satan. I mean, Jesus will tell, <laughs> Jesus will tell you like it is. He called one woman a dog, didn't he? And you know, when Jesus calls you a dog, you start bow-wowing. You start scratching. And if he said you're from the synagogue of Satan, you're from the synagogue of Satan. Amen. And the reason he said that is because they opposed Christianity they, and did everything in their power to persecute Christians and stop the spread of the gospel message. And up to this point, the Jews were the Old Testament church of God. There was only one church in the Old Testament that was the Jewish church. And, and, and But when Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, he started a New Testament church. And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against that church, and especially not this synagogue of Satan. And these are the same Jews that rejected him, had him crucified, and now they're rejecting his gospel and his followers. Yeah. And he don't take too kindly to that. You know, uh, Paul, uh, Saul was going around before he became Paul, the apostle Paul, and he was persecuting the church. He was putting them in prison, and he was even having some of them executed. And when Jesus knocked them off that horse on the road to Damascus that day, and that light shone from heaven brighter than the noonday sun, and he, he said, who is it, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In other words, you mess with his church, you messing with him. He takes it personally. And he took it personally from these Jews, the synagogue of Satan. They're false, hypocritical Jews who wanted to keep God all to themselves. We got God, let's keep him in a box. Don't share him with those outside. They don't deserve our God. We're the only ones that deserve our God. Don't go beyond these walls and invite anybody in here. And yet, they were far from God. They were hating, maligning, opposing those who would answer the call and heed the message of the gospel and doing everything they could to persecute and destroy the church that Jesus started. Paul told us in Romans, the second chapter, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly or in appearance, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Circumcision was their sign of being a part of the covenant the Old Testament covenant. And then he said, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart. So these newfound Christians, these baby Christians that were accepting the gospel and being born again, they might not have been circumcised in the flesh like the Jews were, which the Jews thought made them better, but they were circumcised of heart, which is much more important. Because that circumcision is of the flesh is on the outside. It don't say anything about what's on the inside. But when you're circumcised of heart, then you know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So in other words, you can call yourself whatever you want to, but it doesn't make it so. You can call yourself an astronaut. Amen. <laughs> you can call yourself a brain surgeon. You can call yourself a woman when you're a man and know it, but that doesn't make you one. 
And you know, today people are demanding to be recognized and called by whatever particular pronoun they feel like or choose for that particular day. But when they stand before God, they're gonna be called exactly what they are, a man or a woman. And in God's eyes, that's the only two pronouns that he will ever pronounce. That's the only two pronouns that he will ever see is one man and one woman. So you can call yourself even a Christian, but that doesn't make you a Christian either. You may even be able to fool your friends, your family, your co-workers. You might even be able to fool your pastor, but you will never fool God. Because he's not looking at your outward appearance. He's looking to see what's in your heart. He knows what's in your heart. That's where it counts. Proverbs tell us that it's out of the heart come the issues of life. Out of the heart flows our life. You know, you can live anywhere you want geographically, but you really live out of here. And that's why no matter where you go or what you're running from, when you get there, you're going to be there and you're going to have the same problems you had from the place you was running from. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Why? Because you live out of here. The Lord told the prophet Samuel when he was to, to anoint the next king of Israel, he said, don't consider the outward appearance. Don't consider his height or his stature. Don't consider his education or what he looks like. I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. The Lord doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. So you better be concerned about what's your heart, what's in your heart. And then the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29, 13, he says, And the Lord so says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And they worship of me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Isaiah used the, uh, the word rote, and the word rote, in the Hebrew actually means that their fear and reverence for God is faith and they learned it by repetition without any thought to the meaning of it. Now you know you can look around this church right here during praise and worship and you can see people raising their hands. You can see people praising God with their lips but you don't know what's in here. You don't know if they're just doing it because everybody else is doing it or because they were taught to do it. And I know we teach our little children how to worship God and how to praise God. And we play music back there. And, and that's great. They need to learn to start somewhere. But eventually they have to start worshiping from the heart. They that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. And eventually they'll catch on. Eventually it'll start coming from their heart. And they're not just doing it because they learned how to do it. Amen? Amen? And there's a lot of people like that in today's church. They honor God with their lips because it's something they learn and give no thought to the real meaning of it. There's too many people like that. But thank God nobody's like that in here. I thought that would have got an amen. <laughs> but anyway, for the time we have remaining, and I'm trying not to go too long today because I got something planned after church here. 
but I want to talk about the key of David, keys in general, and doors, whether they be opened or closed, and what they mean. Jesus said in verse 7 of our text, he said, To the angel in the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. There's a reason Jesus had to make known that he had the key of David, and he had to make known that he had the power and authority to open and close doors that no man could open or close. And first of all, what is the key of David? I did an extensive study on this, and to be quite frank with you, I never really found the answer. I was a little bit disappointed uh, that I couldn't find the answer, but I realized there is no real answer to that question. Not in the Bible anyway, but I learned a lot of things while I was searching it out. And the key of David appears only twice in the Bible, once in the New Testament, we just read it, and once in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22. And like I said, unfortunately, the scripture doesn't directly answer the question regarding the key of David or what it means. But even though it doesn't specifically identify this key, it gives us a lot of useful information concerning it, and I'm going to share that with you anyway. Now, one of the things it does show is that the possession of this key by Christ is proof that the one that is addressing this church at Philadelphia is the Holy One, the one who is true. It's proof positive of that. Because the one thing that made David unique was the promise that God made him through the prophet Jeremiah. God prophesied that one of David's descendants would bring salvation and confirm his covenant with all men. There's only one person that could fulfill that prophecy, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And we know that he's from the house of David, from the lineage of David. Why was he from the lineage of David? Because Jesus had to have access and authority to both thrones, the one on earth and the one in heaven. The one on, in heaven came from his father. That was conferred upon him from his father. But the one on earth, he had to come through the laws of man. He had to come through the lineage of David, the lineage of the flesh, in order to possess that throne. He had to be a descendant of a king in order to inherit the throne or the right to sit on that throne. And so he come from the house of David. He was born in David's lineage. And let me tell you something, there's a lot of shady characters in that lineage. Rahab the harlot, harlot was in that lineage. So God wasn't looking for perfect people. He never does. He never looked for perfect people. He looked for willing people. He looked for obedient people. And he'll make you what he wants to make you. All he needs is you to say, here am I, Lord, send me. He'll give you all you need. He'll anoint you, appoint you, and he'll provide for you. And so when he said that he has the key to David, it could only mean one person, the one who is speaking to the church, the one who is holding the key. And there's only one key of David, and there can only be one possessor of that key, and he was letting the church know that he's the one that possesses it. 
And the key of David identifies and confirms that Jesus is the one that Jeremiah spoke of in his prophecy. And the other occurrence of the key of David is in the book of Isaiah where it states in chapter 33 and verse 22, it says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. You know, when when you had the keys to the city, and in this case, it's, it's the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem for that matter, it was a big key. You ever see that commercial with the, I don't know what it is, Roadrunner or whatever, and the guy is selling insurance, and they, they give him the key to the city, and he straps it on his belt, and it's a big, long key, and he goes walking off, and he's dragging on the ground, a big key. And that's what they would present. Uh, symbolically, and in some cases, it actually opened the gate to the city, which was a big gate with a big lock. And so it would be a, a big key. You didn't carry it on a keychain. You carried it over your shoulder. And so this key of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Of course, it's talking about doors. And this is the same thing Jesus told the church in Philadelphia that he had the power and authority to do. So Isaiah is talking about the key of the house of David, and it was an actual event where they laid that key on Eliakim's shoulder, who was a servant of King Hezekiah. And they laid that on his shoulder as he was being promoted as the highest ranking official in King Hezekiah's kingdom. So they gave him the key to the kingdom. And that key meant that he alone had the power and authority to open and shut any doors in that kingdom. If he shut a door, you couldn't open it because he was the only one who had the key. There were no duplicate keys. And that key of David was symbolic of his absolute authority as the king's representative. So Eliakim was actually a type of Christ. And he would have the same authority in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has absolute authority in his father's kingdom. That's what Eliakim's ordination pointed to. So when Eliakim was ordained to office, he was clothed with a robe and a girdle. The same way Jesus was clothed as he was speaking to these churches. And that was an insignia of his office. And having... And the fact that the government was committed to him and laid on his shoulder through the key or the authority that the king gave him. So Isaiah speaking prophetically of Jesus said, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest where? Upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's no doubt about what this prophecy represented. It represented Jesus as he stood at the door of that church in Philadelphia and said, I have the key of David. I have all authority, all power in this kingdom, and I can open and close any doors that I want to, and no man can open or close the doors that I open and close. Amen? So we might not know the exact meaning of this particular key. Oh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> we know that these keys represent power, authority, and possession, and access. Because, for example, 
Do you have a house key on your keychain? Maybe a car key, maybe an apartment key? What does that key represent? That, that key means that if, you, if it truly belongs to you, then it means that you are the owner of that house or you at least have authority over that thing that the key fits and the thing that the key gives you access to. And even if you don't own the house or you live in an apartment, the key still gives you authority and control of it and everything in it. As the owner or possessor of that house, you have the, the right to open and close any door in that house, to lock or unlock any door in that house. Now, if I give you my key, then I'm giving you authority to my house. And I have to know you well enough to trust you with that responsibility, to trust you with everything that I own. Why? Because you have the key. And if a police officer comes up to you and says, what are you doing at this door? And you say, well, I'm going in, I have the key. The owner of the home gave me the key. He gave me authority to go in the house. That police officer has to leave you alone. Because that key is in a crowbar. That key ain't a hammer and chisel. That key represents authority and access to what it opens. So David had a key, a token of right of sovereignty in his kingdom, which was later passed to Eliakim, who was a type of Christ, like I said. So how much more then has Christ, the son of David, how much more does he have the key to the spiritual city of David, which is Jerusalem, it's called the city of David, but not only that, but the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Only one key. Jesus has it. That means he has the supreme right, power, and authority as it is in his own house. He can open and close any door in his house. He can open and close any door in the kingdom that God has entrusted him with. So he opens the same door to all that overcome in Revelation here at the Church of Philadelphia. And he says no one can shut it. He closes the door to all the fearful and unbelieving and no one can open it. See, if you're a believer and you accept the gospel, Jesus opens the door for you. And you walk in that door and no one can shut it in your face. But if you're an unbeliever, Jesus closes that door and he doesn't allow you access into it. Why? It's his kingdom, it's his door, it's his key. He determines who comes in and who goes out. Amen. And so he likewise has all authority and power in his church on the earth. So he's telling us through the church in Philadelphia that everyone he opens that door to can enter in and enjoy all the privileges and benefits of his house, of his kingdom. So Jesus in the book of Revelation is said to possess several keys. He possesses the key to death, hell, and the grave. What does that mean? I mean, he has authority over these places. He has authority over death, hell, and the grave. He can open the door of eternal life to the believer and close the door to eternal life to the unbeliever. It's his right. His door, his king. And if he opens the door, no man can close it. If he closes it, no man can open it. There's only, there's no other way into the kingdom. There's no other 
door for you to come. There's no back door for you to slide in. No uh, unlocked window for you to slide in. There's only one door, and you got to enter in through that door, and he controls it. As a matter of fact, Jesus gave his church the keys to the kingdom of God. He gave them the ability to lock and unlock, to bind and to loose. Yes. He said, I give you, he said it to Peter, but Peter was a representative of the church, the newborn church. He says, I give unto you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind or, or lock shall be locked in heaven. It'll be considered locked in heaven. What you open or loose shall be considered open or loose in heaven. That's some powerful authority. That's some powerful access. As a matter of fact, Jesus said of himself in John, he says, I am the door, not a door. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. If any man enter in. He's not forcing you in. You have to enter. So now we have an idea of the power of the key. But what does this door that's open in Philadelphia represent? Jesus said in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. It's a privilege to have Jesus set an open door before you. And he says no man can shut it. And he says, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hath not denied my name. That's why the door was open before them. So what does this door represent to the church in Philadelphia? And to every other church, for that matter, that has kept his word and refused to deny his name. Anybody that's kept his word and refused to deny his name has an open door before them. But what's on the other side of that door? What does that door represent? 99.9% .9 of the time, a door represents opportunity. And in this case, it's an opportunity for ministry. It's an opportunity to advance the kingdom, to advance the gospel. And why? Because you kept my word and didn't deny my name, so I can trust you with this open door to walk through it and advance my kingdom, proclaim the gospel, because I know you won't deny it, and I, and I know you'll share my name or be a witness for me outside of the church. That's what the door leads to. Why is it open? Because I can trust you. Paul said about doors, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. So in other words, he's saying, uh, you know, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus, even though I was going to leave. I'm going to stay here till Passover because a great door of opportunity has opened for me to preach the gospel and be a witness for Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stay here a little longer. In other words, I'm going to go through that door. That's why the door was open. God opened that door for him because he knew he'd go through it. In another place, he said, uh, Paul said to pray for him that God would open unto us a door of utterance to preach the gospel of Christ. 
What's the door of utterance? A ministerial opportunity to advance the kingdom. Pray that a, a, a door be opened so we can preach the gospel. Jesus said, for everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Knocketh on what? A door. A door. If you knock on it, Jesus said, I'll open it. And he said in Revelation 3.20, this is one of the most famous doors that we know of. There's artwork uh, depicting this door and Jesus standing at it knocking. And if you look at the picture, if you look at the painting, you'll see there's no doorknob on the outside. That's because it can't be opened from the outside. It can only be opened from the inside. So when he's knocking on the door of your heart, you're the only one that could open it and let him in. He said, if you let me in, I'll come in and sup with you. And to have supper with you or to sup with you or to share a meal with you means that he'll let you into his covenant. He'll become a covenant partner with you because that's part of the covenant ceremony is to share a meal. These doors all represent opportunities. Just Google a, a search in your Bible app if you have one or you version and put in doors. And oh, there's plenty of doors to look at. But this is the only church that Jesus opened this door to for the advancement of the gospel. I wonder why. He didn't open any other doors for any of the other six churches. Just this one. And I thought maybe it's because this is the only church that he knew would step through it. Maybe it's because this is the only church that kept his name and kept his word. And he knew he could trust them with this door of opportunity. And that door, like I said, it represented opportunities to witness and advance the kingdom of God. Can he count on you to step through it? If he opens it before you, can he count on you to step through it? You say, well, what if I don't see an open door? Brother Darrell said in his message a couple of weeks ago, if, there, if there's no open door, stand in the hallway and praise him till one opens. Amen. 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 You praise him long enough, you desire for an open door, and he'll open it. There's two reasons, two reasons that there isn't an open door before you. Number one, you haven't knocked on any. You haven't asked for one to be opened. If you ask God to open the door for you, he'll open it. Number two, God knows you won't step through it. That's why you don't have an open door. He knows if he opens the door before you, you won't step through it. It's all right. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. I'll amen myself. But every one of us should be praying for a door of opportunity to witness to someone. And I'm not asking, asking or talking about you walking up to someone on the street and asking them if they know Jesus. Unless the Holy Ghost tells you to do that, then you do it. Sometimes you need to knock on a few doors. And I'm not talking about the door to someone's house or apartment either. Again, unless the Holy Ghost tells you to. But let's say you're talking to a co-worker or anyone else for that matter. Now you've been praying for an open door. So you're talking to this co-worker and all of a sudden you get this unction on the inside. Ask him this question. Hey, would you be open to talking to, to talk about eternal things or spiritual things? Would you be open to talk about that? 
and they're going to tell you one of two things. Sure, I don't mind. What's that? Open door. Or they'll say, no, that's kind of personal to me, and I really don't care to talk about those things, you know. Close door. Move along. Don't waste your breath. Door closed. You know, Medea used to say, cha-ching. What'd that mean? Locked up. <laughs> closed door. That's the way it is when you talk to people. You know immediately if they're receiving what you're saying. And that's why Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Why? Because swine have a closed door. They're just going to bounce off the door and roll on the floor. And then they're going to stop them and run into you. Uh, so, you know, uh, we have an open door before us or we don't. If you have an open door, man, hit them with the gospel. Where do you think, if you die today, hypothetically, where do you think you would spend eternity? Bam, you're on your way, baby. You are witnessing for Jesus. He's got to answer you now. And he'll either say, I really don't know, which means the door is still open, so you keep walking. Or he'll say, uh, I don't want to talk about that. Bam, door closed. Move along. You're not going to get anywhere to him. You can talk to your blue in the face. You know, Pastor and I counsel with people all the time. And they come to us for the counseling. They come to us for advice. So if they come to us, their door is open. Because they came to us. So we feel like we have a right to speak into their life. And you can tell as you're talking to them, you can tell that they're receiving it, they're thinking about it, they're listening, and the door is still open. You keep talking. But then all of a sudden, you present them with a truth that they don't like. And you just know. You don't hear cha-ching, but you know cha-ching just happened. The door closed. Move along. Have a nice day. <laughs> Why? You can talk to your blue in the face. It's bouncing off the door. The door is closed. And, and you can't you can't open it from the outside. There's no knob. You can't kick it in. It's reinforced. That door has to be opened from the inside by the owner of the house. Otherwise, you can't get in. Hallelujah. And they may act like they're listening, but you know when that door closed. And you're wasting your breath after that door closed. Verse 10, he says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, or obeyed my command to persevere. You know, in other words, Jesus says, I, 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 I command you to hang in there. I command you to keep the faith. I command you to persevere, to be strong, to endure to the end. And you obeyed that. So I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's talking about the rapture and the tribulation. And in other words, as a matter of fact, in verse 4, or chapter 4, of the, the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, that door in heaven opened, which is the rapture, and those that kept his word and didn't deny his name, went through that door. But the unbeliever that didn't keep his word and denied his name, the door slammed shut. It's like the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Five had oil in their land, five didn't. 
The bride came, the five that had the oil went in, the five didn't have the oil, went running around town trying to find some oil. By the time they found some, we got back to the wedding feast. The door was closed and no man can open. Left behind. So you kept the faith, you didn't deny my name. So you're gonna go in the rapture and the rest of the world is gonna be tested and tried during the tribulation and left on earth. And then verse 11, he says, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You know, Jesus told John to write these things which will shortly come to pass, which you would think that, hey, shortly, well, it's, you know, tomorrow, the next day, next week, or, you know, uh, behold, I come quickly. What quickly means he's coming today, tomorrow, next week. But that's not what it means here. Uh, shortly compared to eternity, quickly compared to eternity, yeah, he's coming quickly. Well, it's been over 2,000 years uh, by our calendar, Billy. It's been over 2,000 years by our calendar, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's 2,000 years. But that's not quickly, that's not a short time. It is to God, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. It's not a long time to the Lord, it's not a long time compared to eternity. He's coming quicker than you think. I know for a fact he's coming in this lifetime. This generation is gonna see him. Whether I make it till he comes or not, I don't know. But somebody sitting here is gonna be here when he comes. Is that quick enough for you? He says, hold fast which you have. Remember, he said you got a little strength. You're not real strong, but that which you have, hold on to it. Don't let any man take your crown. Don't let no man talk you out of this thing. Hold on to what you have. And remember, Jesus said to the church at Pergamos that if they remained faithful unto death, he would give them a crown of life. And I believe he's talking about the same exact crown here, a crown of life. If you keep his word, don't deny his name, and you stay faithful to the end, he'll, he'll, well, you already got a crown of life, but it's up to you to keep it. He said, hold fast to that. Yes. Then verse 12, he says, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Hallelujah. God's got a new name for you. Nobody else is going to have it. Nobody else is going to know it. It's special just for you. And in, in, in other words, just like with with Pergamos, Jesus said that all kings shall behold your salvation and glory. Why? Because you kept his word, didn't deny his name, and remained faithful to the end. He said you should be called by a new, man, new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. What an honor. And then he says, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And, ha and have a new name. I'm going I'm to be a pillar in the temple of God and have a new name. Amen. You won't call me Pastor Mike. You're going to call me what Jesus calls me. 
I am who I am because of the I am. I want to be what he calls me, amen? amen? See, once you've kept the faith, shared the gospel, stepped through those open doors that he provided for you, you'll be fixed and unmovable in God's kingdom. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to close with this illustration I found on the internet. It fits really well here. Brother Darrell, you might know him. Pantywack Queenie, you may know him as well, but he was a Marine by the name of Chesty Puller. You know, Brother Darrell, I'm, I'm sure you heard the story. But he rose from the rank of private to Lieutenant General. Now I'm telling you, in the Marines, that's a bad dude. He saw combat in numerous conflicts. He was in the service 37 years, so he saw quite a few wars. And so he saw combat in numerous conflicts, and he earned an unprecedented, which means that nobody else has ever done it to this day, an unprecedented five Navy crosses, a distinguished service cross, and a silver star. He earned all of those in his illustrious career in the, in the Marines. Now the Navy Cross is the nation's second highest military award for valor in combat. Second only to the Medal of Honor, which is the highest honor our country bestows on a, on a combat veteran. The Distinguished Service Cross is the Army's equivalent of the Navy Cross which is awarded by the Navy and the Marine Corps. The Silver Star is the United States' third highest military award for valor in combat. He earned five of the crosses and, and, and the uh, Silver Cross and the uh, Service Cross. But here's what made him really famous. As a colonel in the Korean conflict, I mean, call it a war. It's like a police action, like Vietnam. But Chessie was serving as command, commanding officer of the 1st Marine Regiment when he learned that his Marines were completely surrounded by tens of thousands of Chinese soldiers. Tens of thousands all around his little handful of men. And he says something, in my opinion, that became one of the most saying, most famous sayings that ever came out of any war that we've ever fought. He famously declared, he says, men, we've been looking for the enemy for several days now. Well, we finally found him. He says, we're completely surrounded by them. They're to our north, they're to our south, they're to our west, they're to our east. But we're not going to surrender. Actually, it simplifies our problem. And the problem is, how do we get to the enemy and kill them? He said, well, this just simplified it. He says, get in a circle, face the enemy, and start shooting in every direction. You can't miss. That's what he actually said. And you know that they did that and they held the enemy off for three and a half hours until reinforcements could come and run the rest of them off. And I mean, I'm talking tens of thousands and he had a handful of men. And here's the 
Here's the illustration. Here's the moral of the story. Church, we're surrounded by the enemy. But we're not going to surrender. We're going to step through this door of opportunity before it closes. Get in a circle and start shooting the gospel in every direction. I don't care who you are, where you are. There's a door of opportunity before you. Don't surrender to the enemy's tactics. Don't quit sharing the gospel. Don't be intimidated by the devil. Start shooting. Shoot that gospel. Pastor Ed always talks about word bullets, gospel bullets. Start shooting them bu those word bullets and those gospel bullets in every direction. You may hit a few. You may miss a few. Just keep shooting. Keep turning. Keep shooting. They're all around you. They're not in your circle. They can't get in your circle. as long. The enemy can't get in your circle as long as you're about the Father's business. Shooting the gospel Amen. bullets. Amen. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for doors that are open and even doors that are closed in our life. Because if you close it, we don't want to step through it. And we don't know man can open it. So if, it's, if it isn't opened by you, we're not walking through it. But we want to take advantage of every door of opportunity you've ever opened to us. Not just for ministerial opportunities. Sure, that door for the Church of Philadelphia was to go out and preach the gospel, to be missionaries. Matter of fact, that's what the church was known for. It became a missionary church. It was known for its powerful and strong witness. And thank God for that. And we should step through that door every time you open it for us. But you also open opportunities, open doors of opportunities in our personal life for new jobs, new places, new cars, new things. There's all kinds of doors of opportunity that you open for us. But God, let us be able to discern the difference between a door that was opened by you and a door that was opened by the enemy. Let us know of a certain that this door is a door that you open. And if we know it, we're going to step through it. When we get the confirmation from the Holy Ghost, we're going to step through it. I don't want to be one of those people that have shut doors before me all my life for the simple reason that I won't step through them if you open them. Or for the simple reason that I never knock on any, God. And if a door is open, I'm going to knock on it. And if it's you, I'm going to expect it to open and I'm going to step through it. If it's not you, I'm going to expect it to stay closed because I know you got my back and I know you're watching me and you're not going to let me step through the wrong doors. So I thank you for that discernment. I thank you for the courage, the courage that Chesty had to form a circle and start shooting in every direction until victory came. Hallelujah. That's what we want to do. Lord, we want to shoot in every direction the gospel, witness in every direction until we hit the enemy and turn them around and bring them into our army, bring them into our fold. Thank you for that. Give you glory and honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Hallelujah.
this concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.